Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Leggi and... I'm Peter Lim, podcasting at the 50 Forward, a half century of African studies at Wisconsin conference to mark 50 grand years work on Africa by the African Studies program. Our special guest today is David Newbury, the Gwendolyn Carter Professor of African Studies and Professor of History Emeritus at Smith College. With a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1979, his very extensive research has focused on the historical dynamics of Central and East Africa. Professor Newbury's publications include numerous articles and seven books, including Kings and Clans, Ijui Island and the Lake Kivu Rift, 1780-1840, and the edited volumes African Historiographies, What History for Which Africa, and Paths to the Past, Essays in Honor of Jan van Sina. His most recent books, which frame our talk today, are The Land Beyond the Mists, Essays on Identity and Authority in Pre-Colonial Congo and Rwanda, 2009 with Ohio University Press, and Alison DeForge's Defeat is the Only Bad News, Rwanda under Musinga, 1896 to 1931, 2011, University of Wisconsin Press, which he edited. Peter Lim podcasting from Madison, Wisconsin at the 50 Forward Conference on a half century of African studies at Wisconsin. And it's rather appropriate, I think, that we are discussing today Rwanda and Congo here at Wisconsin, where giants of African studies such as Jan Van Sina and Crawford Young have done so much to develop scholarly research in the region. I'm joined by a leading scholar of Central Africa, Dr. David Newbury, the Gwendolyn Carter Professor of African Studies at Smith College. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, David, you have recently published two important books, quite different, but in some ways related. Firstly, The Land Beyond the Mists, Essays on Identity and Authority in Pre-Colonial Congo and Rwanda from Ohio University Press in 2009, and just last year in 2011, Defeat is the only bad news. Rwanda under Musinga, 1896 to 1931, by the late Alison Desforges, published here at University of Wisconsin Press, which you edited. Perhaps we can start with this latter book. Could you please tell the listeners a little about the work and the legacy of Alison Desforges? Uh, I'd be glad to. Alison was a remarkable person and a close friend and a valued colleague to many people who worked in the area. She was, of course, best known for her human rights work in Central Africa, for which she received a MacArthur Fellowship for her work and published a book entitled Leave None to Tell the Story, which is really a very authoritative study, 900 pages, of the uh, Rwandan genocide. Both the conditions that led to it the participants in it, case studies, the role of the UN, the role of the US, the role of the RPA in ending the genocide. It covers a vast arena of this, and she's well recognized for that. But she was also an important scholar. And because she was so well known for her human rights work, her scholarship has 
been more or less neglected and not so well known, and yet she made as many innovations and contributions in scholarly terms as in human rights terms. So I felt that the time of her death in February of 2009, which was a great loss to many people in the community, for she was also a very good mentor to many people in the field, that one tribute to her would be to publish her dissertation, which, because of her many activities, she had never gotten around to publishing, 1972 dissertation at Yale University. Many of the scholars who had worked on Rwanda were familiar with it, but it hadn't, because it hadn't been published, it hadn't gotten the recognition it deserved. I felt it deserved that recognition because it isn't just about a king in Rwanda. The book focuses on the reign of Musinga, who was the king of Rwanda at the time of European arrival. But it also examines in great detail the internal court factions involved as the royal court tried to develop a strategy to how they would react not only to colonial presence, but also to the presence of an important group of Catholic missionaries. And in the eyes of the court, it was the missionaries who presented at least as great a challenge as the colonial authorities, because the missionaries were challenging the ritual foundations of kingship itself, on, from which they derived their legitimacy. And so there ended up to be, and her book shows this in marvelous detail, perhaps more than any other source for analogous situation in Africa, the competing role of missionaries and colonial power and the court at the same time that each of those parties depended on the other. And not only that, she shows how in that process of negotiating and working out alliances and confrontation, each of those three parties themselves became factionalized internally. She spends a great deal of time on factions at the royal court. She spends a lot of time on the way in which missionaries themselves disagreed on formulating a strategy towards the central court. And she, of course, talks about the multiple uh, colonial presence, Germany, Belgium, and Britain, uh, and how that competition among colonial powers entered into the history of, of this reign, 1896 to 1931. So this is really an important contribution, not only to Rwandan studies, and we haven't had a lot done on colonial Rwandan history, but also, I thought, to African studies as, as a whole. It's a wonderful book with important ramifications, and we hope that listeners will, will read it. And you've done a, a great job in editing and that book and adding a, a prologue. Perhaps we could also now turn to your own work. And how did you get involved in researching the history of Rwanda and Eastern Congo yourself? Well, I ended up there in an unplanned fashion. <laughs> I had previous earlier been teaching in Uganda for four years from 1964 and left in 1968 to do graduate studies at Wisconsin. And 
I planned to go back and work in northern Uganda. In the interval, Uganda's politics had been taken over by Idi Amin, who was not really pleased with having external researchers parading around the northern part of his country. And so I was unable to get research clearance to go to Uganda. And so I went and joined my fiance at the time, Catherine Newbury, who was in Rwanda. And while she was doing her research, I taught in Bukavu, a, a, a provincial capital in Congo at the south end of Lake Kivu. And through various acquaintances there and colleagues at the university that I taught and my own explorations, I found new project possibilities in Congo. So I fled violence to go to Rwanda and Congo where I did my research and unfortunately, as you know, 30 years later, violence caught up with me there too. So this is roughly the same time that Alison was in the field? Alison had just completed her research and although I didn't meet her in the field, we had corresponded quite a lot and I knew her quite a lot then and there were many personal ties. For example, she had worked with a most remarkable Rwandan assistant uh, who was really an, a colleague and when I arrived there she was working with a woman assistant working with her and those interviews weren't very forthcoming dealing with elderly males whom she was and so together we went out and contacted this person who had previously worked with Allison and he was a not only a wonderful colleague but became a very close friend and he unfortunately died in the genocide and Allison and we brought his children to two of his, ch his surviving children to the States for education and they've gone back so we've kept close ties to them but my ties with Allison were professional at that point only at the time really later in the 80s and 90s did I get to know her as a person. Uh, and an important theme running through both books is the deconstruction, if you like, of kingship or of African rulers, of African royalties. And it's something that I've been occupied with lately on a new edited book, uh, in part on the Swazi Queen Regent Labot Sabini and other African royalties. But now you, in your earlier book in 1991, Kings and Clans, published here in Wisconsin, focused very much on the local level, the intersection, if you like, of kings and clans. And you've since edited Alison de Forge's book, which deals with Musinga, as you mentioned, and also uh, you, you discuss the Rwandan queen mother, Kanjugera, in, in that introduction. Um, so there has been a lot of attention to uh, African rulers in the articles that you've gathered together in your other recent book, The Land Beyond the Mists, which is a real tour de force of these sorts of themes across your work over several decades. Together you've made a, a really important contribution to our understanding of, of what kingship really means in this part of Africa. Can you speak more to these issues of kingship? and perhaps the, the deconstruction of more static conceptions of them. Mm, yes. I like the way you phrase that, Peter, about the deconstruction of our concepts of kingship, not of kingship itself, but certainly the way in which outsiders tend to think of it. We have a fairly rigid view of what we mean by kingship. 
And a lot of my work has been addressing those external views of the pillars of our understanding of African society. So not only kingship as a form of political expression, of community expression as I see it, but also social identities such as clan identities and uh, many other elements as the role of chronology and the way in which different cultures and political formations use and see chronology as important to their validation. Claiming antiquity, for example, is important for the legitimacy of, a, of the kingdom in Rwanda. And so I've tried to approach these by asking questions about these assumptions that we share and are often shared by uh, Africans as well, but by placing them into their historical context and looking at the emergence of these concepts. And what turns out is that these, are, these concepts end up to be quite contingent and rather frail. And therefore, when the context changes, so does the nature of the institution being discussed. In terms of kingship, I really looked at this in, at three levels. The first was the origin of concepts of kingship, what in this area is called ubwami. That is, a mwami is a king, ubwami is the concept or the institutions associated with that. The second level is the origin of a particular dynasty within that realm uh, where kingship exists. And the third then would be struggles over legitimacy and succession. That's the kind of struggle that emerged in Allison's book as Musinga came to power through a coup d'etat. But where I worked originally from 1970, this was an area that did not have a tradition of royalty in the 18th century. And yet, over the 60 years, from roughly 1780 to the mid-19th century, there developed an, in this area, which happened to be an island, I'll come back to that in a moment because it was important for analytical purposes, the emergence of a kingdom that where kingship had never existed before. So that seemed to me to be an interesting historical problem. How do you answer the fact? There were two outside assumptions. Either that kingship would have been formed through the power of an indivi a charismatic individual who through force and simply charisma would bring people to him and his lineage and his delegates to accept their word, perhaps imposing his word on them. And a second would be that kingship came to an area through exogenous um, origins, that is, from the outside and was imposed in some fashion. The more I went into this, looking at this, I was surprised, first of all, that there was no single tradition of the origin of kingship on this island even though it happened within the realm of oral sources, of oral memory. And so I looked at what accounts for this. And I came up with a, an understanding of my own that kingship really emerged from the contingency of the conjunction of several factors. First, political centralization was occurring, and in this case it was occurring on an island because an island community 
being geographically separate can easily have its own identity. And this is in Lake Kivu, in, in eastern Congo. That's right. Yeah. And Lake Kivu is the border today between Rwanda and Congo in Central Africa, a highland lake. The island that I'm speaking of is about 25 miles long, about three miles wide. At the time I went out there in the 1970s, it had a population of about 50,000. Now it has about three times that. So that's the size of the social formation I was dealing with. So the first was a tendency towards political centralization, but that only happened according to what was happening around this community on the mainland, both east and west, both in Rwanda and in Congo. The second important factor was the consolidation of ritual power. And to do that, these people were drawing on rich cultural concepts of ritual and religion that were widely spread in the region, but they were interpreting them in ways that were, had particular meaning for solving their particular problems of unity in this place and at that time. And the third element was the coming together of new groups of social identities that now are recognized as clans, but 200 years ago did not exist. And as I pursued that theme, it became clear that clan structures and clan identities were not deeply rooted, not primordial, they were not unchanging because clan identities, concepts, and, and membership changed over the 200 years that oral tradition covered. And they were not universal in the sense that a clan structure that defined one social identity that, who identified by that way might not be the same structures or the same reasons that brought together and held together people in another analogous I clan identity. So clans weren't, it wasn't a homogeneous concept that you could apply to different boxes everywhere throughout the society. And what emerged was these social groupings that we refer to now as clan identities only emerged at the time, at the same time as the processes of political centralization and ritual power came to the fore. In other words, each of them dialectically defined the other and reinforced the process of the other. And so my question was then, a lot of what I was working with was, what was the dialectic between regional processes? How events in the region and cultural knowledge from the region, in this case ritual, played off against internal or local particular factors to create a new concept of identity on this island. And the fundamental issue of kingship there was not in political power as we define it today, i.e. military force or the capacity to extract, but rather in the presence of, a, of ritual legitimacy. Kingship was justified because it was ritually based. And it was ritually based because these social groups participated in the celebration of kingship. And so kingship really is a way of expressing uh, the coming together 
of all of these different groups called clans performing in a common set of rituals associated around kingship and therefore using kingship to celebrate that unity of purpose among them. And this is suggesting uh, very much to me the, the way that historians have changed their methodologies of doing African history and one aspect of the history of African kingship that you have explicated is you know the chronology and king lists and something also researched by David Henniger being honored tonight at this conference and reminds me also of the work of another Wisconsin graduate Paul Landau more recently about allegiance and uh, affiliations of clans and uh, in southern Africa from 1400 but in your chapter in Land Beyond the Mists entitled Trick Cyclists, a wonderful title, Trick Cyclists, recontextualizing Rwandan dynastic chronology, you show how this very close attention to regional patterns can undermine a more static conception of dynastic chronology, revealing it as more open to interpretation and also to local reconstructions. And we might also here ponder the the problem of more static conceptions, perhaps today, of kingship. So how then have our ways of researching and writing African history in Central Africa changed in this regard? Well, the idea of dealing with static institutions is central to the kind of issue that has attracted my research attentions. And one of the frameworks that create a static concept of these is, of course, a rigid chronology. In this area, or at least for Rwanda most notably, it was assumed that the legitimacy of the kingdom was enhanced by its antiquity. And therefore, the older the kingdom could claim to have existed, the more legitimate and the more powerful and important it became. The title of that article, Trick Cyclists, comes about because in royal court terms, kings follow each other in cycles, repeated cycles of four kings that in four successive royal names that follow each other. At the end of that cycle, the names repeat each other. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the basic structure. And those famous historians, Kagame and, and then Vansina, did much play on revising or Vansina certainly revised Kagame's lists and then others. And yes. So what we have is a shifting chronology here or a disputed or a... A discussed chronology. Yes. <laughs> and in fact, perhaps even a negotiated chronology. Right. Because what I tried to point out was that the Rwandan chronology seems to be formulated from a, an a priori fact that these cycles are important and therefore, where we don't have data, we can fill it out by filling out the expected role of kings in those different cycles. And so, trick cyclists is actually a reference to the way in which the assumption that the kings followed each other in a set cycle and had to repeat each other is being used by the chronologists of the royal court to lengthen their line. I couldn't do that internally the way I came to that conclusion was by comparing the Rwandan chronology with the chronology of four other kingdoms around its perimeter. In the west, the kingdom of Buhavu, 
in the south, the kingdom of Burundi, to the northeast, the kingdom of Ndorwa, and to the southeast, the kingdom of Kisaka. And in every case, those chronologies and king lists were shorter than the Rwandan king list by about the same amount. But in every case, once they had been in contact with the Rwandan line, they had been lengthened. And I could trace that process through the historiography, which then raised questions about was the same process done to the Rwandan line? And the more I looked into it with those questions in line, how was the Rwandan line possibly extended? It became clear that some of these kings were actually military leaders or other participants in the royal court, not necessarily enthroned kings. And in one case, at least, one of the entire cycles seems to have been put in, inserted in, the, in order to complete the perceived propriety of an important kingly chronology should look like. So that's an example of how, by careful comparative work in this case, we can go about and reassess the received knowledge that we had uh, from basically colonial and court written work beforehand. But I should also just add one other thing. While Rwanda's had one of the largest written historiographies, in Africa for any area of comparable size. Perhaps Buganda and Ashanti would be on the same scale of a, a written bibliography on those areas. That uh, oral sources have been very important addition to that and it has allowed us to examine the nature and character of the royal court sources because orality allows researchers to receive voices, to hear voices from outside of the ideological framework of the royal court itself. And so by bringing in oral sources, which also was one of the innovations that Alison DeForge introduced in her book, one of the first books to draw on oral sources, which allowed her to look at factions in the court and how they operated. Oral sources can do a great deal in uh, bringing to bear different perspectives and often those perspectives then can lead to a different understanding of the received originally written sources that we have at hand. So this chronology, looking at chronology in this sense brings in new historiographical methods as well as new kinds of analytic questions. What then if we, um, if we look at the state of the art say of the historiography today or, or even the politics more broadly pictured. We have a, a, in many African countries today, you mentioned Uganda, in Ghana, in South Africa, the, the coming back, if you like, of the indigenous rulers, the uh, rise in their status, sometimes accompanied by various constitutional changes. And so there is perhaps some solidifying of these conceptions of what kings uh, or nobles means and uh, so how would how can we situate this in the if you like the state of the art of the historiography particularly in central africa but obviously there's also been in the in the recent uh, past some great political traumas in in rwanda and eastern congo in particular also in uganda so uh, as well as the thinking about the state of the art of uh, historiography, I'm just wondering, in a way, how can the historian help? How can the social scientist help in coming to terms with these uh, momentous changes? Not all of them, of course, positive. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, well, let me separate that. Those are wonderful ideas. Let me try and separate them out. Yes. You mentioned what is the role of kings today? What, what is the nature of violence in Central Africa? And then what is the role of history in coming to understand those, that violence? Let me take them one at a time. Yes, there is there are a certain context in which kings now are very prominent. And from my work, what's important to understanding kingship isn't necessarily understanding kings or the court as a structure that's imposed on society and simply makes demands on society where people respond to that in choreographed manner. What was important, as I understood it, in the historical process of kingship is understanding the context within which political central authorities operate. And that is crucial to giving life and legitimacy to the political form that we call kingship. That happened in Rwanda as well, and I won't go into that except, well, maybe I'll come back to that. And so that when we look now at, as you put it, the revival of kingship in political terms today, I think we need to understand this in its own context. And that is that in many cases, this is being done as a counterweight, as a foil, or as a protector to the state and the state demands on people. And often they will turn to a concept of collective identity that is embedded within the state but separate from the state as a way of seeking to create their own demands or rather protect themselves from the demands of the state. And I think that in the case of the Uganda kingdoms, that is a factor at hand. The situation in Uganda, the political and economic situation, has been very challenging, very difficult for a lot of people. And I think that one of the responses has been, we need to redefine the contours of our political community. And in doing that, of course, turning to the legacy of kingship is probably helpful in that regard. But I don't think it is at all the same nature of political institution in today's terms embedded into state structures as it was in pre-colonial terms or even early colonial terms. And so when we or anyone uses that term of kingship or kings, we're assuming a certain static understanding of what is behind that term. And I think that that probably needs to be contextualized and looked at very carefully as to what its purpose and role and function is. The second point you raised was the nature of violence in this area. It has been terrible and it has been traumatic and it still goes on in Eastern Congo. And it has affected all three of the countries that I've been closely involved with um, lately, Burundi, Rwanda, and Congo. But I think the, the important point to start with is each the violence in each one of those countries has emerged from its own struggles and concerns. That is, I call these convergent catastrophes because while certainly the presence of violence in one of these closely interrelated countries affects politics 
in the neighboring countries. Violence is not something that moves from one country to another like an amoeba or like a parasite. It has roots in the political struggles within each of those countries independently. And so if we want to understand violence there, we can't understand it as a generic fact. We have to understand it, each one as a product of its own political environment, intensified by, reinforced by, violence in the neighboring countries. For example, violence in Burundi in 1993 with the assassination of President Ndadaye led to the presence in Rwanda of many Hutu refugees from Burundi fleeing the violence to follow up with the assassination of Ndadaye on the part of the army of Burundi, which was mostly Tutsi. It's more complicated than that, but at any rate, somewhere between 200 and 300,000 refugees fled Burundi for what they saw as ethnic purposes. They were in Burundi, in Rwanda, as refugees at the time of the political crisis in Rwanda that led up to Rwanda's genocide. And so when that genocide was provoked by people in power in the Habjalimana regime, they could turn to this refugee community as a source of their malicious strength to carry out their own. So here's a case. The connections are there, but it's not the same item. There was a separate political event in Burundi from that in Rwanda. And similarly, after the Rwandan genocide with about 1.2 refugees from Rwanda in Congo, that intensified political relationships in eastern Congo, then called Zaire. 1.2 million refugees. Yeah. That's a lot of huge, people yeah. with huge demands on resources, on food, on forest resources, on water, etc., etc. And so their presence was certainly a factor in intensifying the political crisis there. But of course, the political crisis in Congo really has a lot more to do with Kinshasa and a man named Mr. Maputo than it did with events in Rwanda. But nonetheless, the fact of having violence in one presented, intensified the political process in their neighboring states. Um, so I think we have to really look at violence in its, in its, for its local origins and local causes. As far as what the role of history is, there is no, obviously there is no predestination to history, there is no direct relationship. However, I don't think you can understand the nature of the political process in any of these countries today without understanding the history within which these processes occur. Because certainly the local people come to their political arena with those thoughts firmly in mind. It doesn't dictate what happens today, but it does provide the cultural a an inventory of cultural and political responses to crises, in part by what is available to them from earlier models, but in part because of unresolved conflicts between different communities. And therefore, in times of political crisis, those unresolved issues sometimes emerge and turn what might be a political crisis into a much more devastating 
and, and bloody overt confrontation. So one has to know history in order to understand it, in order to understand contemporary crises. That problem has been enhanced because since the Rwandan genocide, there has been a, an enormous number of people drawn to Rwanda because of the crisis and, and the, the urgency of the crisis. And, and going to write about Rwanda. Going to write about mm -hmm. it, going to going, provide services yes. and aid and reporting on it, and, and understandably so. And they often do very good work. However, if they don't understand the history of what's behind this, they, they make up their own scenarios. And sometimes their actions can be carried out on foundations then that are not relevant to the conditions they're trying to resolve. So it, is, it behooves them to acquaint themselves with the history of the people they're trying to work with in resolving some of these problems. So history has a very important role to that. Just as an addendum to that, I should point out that Alison, I mentioned earlier, Alison DeForge was both a human rights activist and an important historian. And it's my feeling, I worked this out in an article published in the Canadian Journal of African Studies in 2010, that in fact, her training as a historian was an important component to making her such an effective human rights advocate. And her dedication to human rights issues was an important motivation for her in doing history in the way in which she did, getting it right and getting the empirical record as deeply rooted as possible. So while many people think that human rights activists and scholars are engaged in very different activities that sometimes don't go very well together. For example, a human rights activist will expect it to be, be a partisan, to be engaged in contemporary political issues, whereas a scholar is supposed to be more detached and removed. In fact, I think Allison showed a way in which both are essential uh, to the other. So historians do have a contribution to make in trying to address problems uh, in contemporary issues, and it, it it's probably a good idea for people going and working on those issues to be aware of, of the kind of thing that's involved. Many of the issues in Alison DeForge's book, for example, are very relevant to post-genocide Rwanda today. And not only because the president of Rwanda is the direct descendant of some of the most important political actors at Musinga's court, but also because she's laying out in that book many of the cultural mannerisms that guide political action. And those, of course, are still alive and function quite well in Rwanda today. She was a great scholar activist, and we're very pleased to remember her in this way. And we're very pleased that David Newbury could talk to us today, raising many important uh, questions and providing some answers for us all to consider. So uh, David, thank you very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Giannino. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afropod.com. 
That's A-F-R-I-P-O-D dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.